0: Oh, there's nothing halfway about the Iowa way To treat you when we treat you Which we may not do at all There's an Iowa kind, the special chip on the shoulder Attitude we've never been without That we recall We can be cold as a the falling thermometer in December If you ask about our weather in July we're so by God stubborn we can stand noses. Hello and time. welcome to a very special episode of the Worst Wing. It's Stu by himself uh, today for today's episode. I've returned from my journey, Bernie journey to the Iowa caucuses and I'll be honest, I haven't really been able to sleep well or eat right or do much else but like read the internet, post angrily and stare into the middle distance um, since I got back for the last couple days. So, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, if you're not here for this sort of like confessional or travelogue sort of, um, posting, if you will, we will be coming out next week with a less self-indulgent and more TV oriented episode where Dave will join me. Um, this is sort of part of my process of working through what I've experienced in the last three weeks. So, Chances are this one will be a little less fun than our usual episode, but if you're here to listen, I hope you enjoy it anyway. I'll try and make it um, as cogent and, I guess, entertaining as possible. So here we go. I'm back in New York City. Uh, My wife and I drove out to Des Moines, Iowa on Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend just about three weeks ago now, which I fully cannot believe has gone by so quickly. Um, So I spent two full weeks living in hotels in Sioux City, volunteering on behalf of the Bernie Sanders for President campaign. I also then sat as a precinct captain for um, a precinct located in Woodbury County, which is where Sioux City is located. Uh, Precinct captain being a person who's there on behalf of each campaign, basically to sort of act as, um, their team's chief representative and administrator. And in our case, sort of like a safeguard and shadow government between our people and the DNC who technically runs all the caucusing. So, you know, it was two weeks of grinding work in the cold, um, Frankly, also in computer systems and managing people, and was really just a crash course in sort of grassroots campaigning and management uh, while I was out there. Um, I had no idea what I was in for. Turns out I was good at a couple things, not so great at others, and plugged right into what was truly a just a phenomenal effort on behalf of our field office in Sioux City. Um, huge shouts to Michael and Val, who led the charge, and to Ed and Joe, uh, the kind of four staffers who were there full time um, on behalf of the campaign. And they really made everything tick in spite of a couple of hiccups here and there. So that sort of lays the groundwork. um, But I want to narrow down what I'm talking about a little bit because this is sort of an encapsulation of what the caucuses this time around and the process thereof have meant to me via my experience um, because it's actually a, a pretty rare glimpse to be on the ground for you know, from start to finish of the process, you know, the work up to it, the caucusing itself, and then the aftermath and the scoring, which, as I'm sure you're all aware, was tremendously fucked up this time around. We can bypass that for the time being. We'll probably touch on it a bit next week. So one of the core functions of a volunteer in these campaigns is to just go out and talk to voters. Um, There is a huge number of potential voters in any given city. It is a tremendous time commitment that the campaign in this, I guess, situation has elected to make a core principle of it as an organization that is physically organizing people into itself. One of the main duties of a volunteer is to go out and just speak face-to-face and try to convince people to vote for your candidate. And more often than not, at least by the time I got there, move them up what various models call the organizing, excuse me, the engagement ladder. Or I think in Jane McAlevey's model, it's like move them towards the center of the target. You know, you go from disengaged to activist. You know, you move them to the activist level. Um, And that was one of our core responsibilities. So in the first probably eight days that I was there in the run-up to the big – AOC Bernie rally um, in Sioux City on January 26th. Um, my principal responsibility was to get lists of addresses and people, registered voters, on my phone in a little app called Minivan and literally go out and walk from house to house talking to people, um, asking them how they felt about Berno, asking them how they felt about politics in general if they weren't already on board and if they were strongly on board highly encouraging and sort of upselling them on taking further action themselves, you know, delegating out this additional responsibility and really building, you know, sort of like a decentralized network for these, uh, just grinding tasks that a campaign frankly needs to complete in order to reach as many voters as possible. So I probably personally knocked about 500 doors. Uh, I think the campaign released a nice round 500,000 number, um, at some point in the closing hours of our time there. Um, so <laughs> I like to think that I was a significant portion of the effort. You know, it's not me, us, but it's also very much me and what I did. Um, but in the course of knocking those 500 doors, um, one thing that I was kind of not shocked by, but I that stuck in my craw after a while was that actually a lot of people not only opened their doors and then, like, were willing to talk to me, but volunteered the fact that they could not vote in the caucus or the general due to the fact that they were felons. Um, this isn't, uh, I mean, our fucked up system of justice, notwithstanding, this wouldn't necessarily be a personal info, a uh, piece of personal information that I would, uh, you know, volunteer to a stranger who is standing on my porch at this point. However, people seem to um, talk pretty openly about it but considering my you know my 500 doors or whatever probably comprised at most maybe like half a percent of the entire county's population and um, I started to wonder uh, after a while what sort of dire circumstances in Sioux City which to be fair is a poor-ish to lower working class town in western Iowa like how on earth did this place end up so flush with felons? So it took me a bit to work through this, but one thing that I'd also noticed when I came into town, I drove my own car out because it's invaluable to a campaign to have volunteer transport or to be able to, again, delegate out responsibilities of driving people places. Almost everywhere in the country has no public transit to speak of, and let me tell you, Sioux City, there is almost no transit at all. They don't have any public transportation. Um, They might have like hospital buses or like a county bus system, but it's completely inadequate, um, completely, uh, frankly, stigmatized in a certain way. And the other thing is that they don't have any taxis, which as a very privileged person living in New York City currently, I remember from times before, but was still somewhat culturally jarring to experience a time where it's like, Well, if I am in a place and I don't have my car, how do I go anywhere? Um, So (laughs) the taxis that I did see, uh, it was like Voyagers from the 90s that were falling apart with a little sign on them. And they definitely looked like they would be a quick trip to a serial killer's basement more than where you wanted to go if you hired one. Um, And frankly, even nowadays, I imagine most of the people listening to this and most of our audience... At very, very bare minimum, have access to some level of Uber as what could be an extremely expensive, but probably statistically (laughs) safe way of getting from place to place. So, Uber barely even exists in Sioux City, Iowa. And just for a point of reference, I'd like to make a note that the city's median household income is only $43,000 per year, which is $10,000 or about 20% lower than the U.S. median household income. So that $20 that it costs to call a random person who happens to have a car who can drive you um, to get across town to do whatever it is that you need transport for takes on a little bit of a different perspective if you're talking about, you know, we are literally making less money than most of the country. You know, one SD outside, if not more, outside of the median household income. Number, so I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this point, and that the bulk of these felons who are incapable of joining in and having their voices heard at the Iowa caucuses were felons because of DUIs. So, the law in Iowa states that a DUI is charged as a felony um, when it is either results in injury caused or as a repeated, in this case, a third offense. Um, Before I say anything more, frankly, I'm not going to litigate the danger and like shitheadedry of drinking and driving. Like I'm 35 years old. I've been steeped in that sort of public shame mantra of responsibility and uh, puritanical morality since frankly, dare... Sat us down when I was in fourth grade and told us for like a couple weeks how, you know, taking drugs would kill us and marijuana use caused teen pregnancy and drinking would stunt your growth and prevent you from becoming an adult, blah, blah, blah. I understand that, and frankly, I can reserve judgment for um, people who drink too much, get behind the wheel of a car, and, you know, by hook or by crook like they are endangering themselves, they're endangering the people on the roads. However, that's just the sort of like the backdrop of my point. Um, Again, I'm not here to litigate the morality of driving under the influence. My point is mainly that there is no other way to get around in rural Iowa. You can't walk anywhere because the cold will kill you dead. And there's no, there's nothing, there's nowhere to walk to. Even the residential neighborhoods that are close to the city center, there's nowhere to walk to. So more often than not, you are left with the choice of don't go anywhere, for example, to work. Or take your chances in a social situation, you know, in which, again, as part of Midwestern culture, drinking is a big thing. Yes, I know some of my friends who don't drink. My wife doesn't drink. Um, I drink quite a bit these days. But uh, again, the sort of the the overarching circumstances of drinking and driving is not really what I'm interested in in here. Anyway, the point of my story that I'm shortly getting to is that one of the people who I met in Sioux City was just a wonderful, wonderful woman who I'm going to anonymize and use a pseudonym pseudonym for, her name is Heather. And a fellow volunteer introduced me to her as his friend from college, whose family was hosting him while he was in town. So Heather's family was putting up um, this volunteer friend of mine in order to facilitate him volunteering in Sioux City. Very noble, you know, super comrades to give up their extra bedroom for four or five days while this guy was helping Bernard in Sioux City. We all kind of got together on one night and went to dinner at what was a relatively bougie for Sioux City, but downright Bernard infested pub um, in the middle of the city. We'd invited like five or six other volunteers and um, one of the people who had given a lecture on Medicare for All at the campaign office that evening just to, you know, sit back, stop worrying about knocking doors or whatever for a little while. And, and everyone just have a couple drinks, chill out, eat some food together and, and chat about ourselves rather than about Bernie for a little while. So my friend's friend, Heather, she has a husband and children. She is utterly brilliant, um, just spectacularly intelligent young woman. She works in a thankless, desperately necessary professional occupation. She had talked to me for about three sentences before she started challenging me on my bullshit, which I love about strangers because I do like to talk a lot and I can be big and voluble and know-it-all-y. And anybody who kind of like gives me, throws shade at me in a social setting and is good at it is something that I, I adore in a person. And really just, it is, it is the best quality for a person to have when I'm, when I'm meeting them, particularly in a social setting. She like called out that I was in my uh, zip-up fleece. As part of a jacket, I have a, a three in one from the North Face that kept me warm, frankly, for two weeks in the Sioux City winter. And I was like, um, is this some sort of like class signifier joke or something? I have no idea. Um, the point being that after, you know, 10 minutes of introductions and stuff, the entire table in this restaurant was just hooting and hollering along with each other like we'd all been friends for years. It was a really special interaction. Um, I hadn't expected. You know, i had expected to find like minds going out to work on the campaign um, and I was excited to do so. But interacting in this setting at last, frankly, you know, had been a week, eight days or whatever since we'd actually kind of kicked back for a little while. It was something special. Um, So in the course of relating stories about trudging through the iced over streets of Sioux City over the last few days, I mentioned sort of in passing the fact that I had spoken with several Disenfranchised felons um, at the doors. And true to form, Heather then volunteered that she had spent the last four years going through just an arduous, agonizing process of applying for the reinstatement of her voting rights after she had been nicked on a felony DUI. So, listening to her describe the administrative hurdles that she had to go through just to like get her voting rights back. The, the paperwork hell and the procedural garbage. I was just really just bewildered sitting here, you know, and you know, I work a corporate job. I understand complicated bureaucracies and shit, but it just sounded, um, it just sounded like it was too much. I, couldn't believe her. I thought it was super fascinating, if terrible. And I asked her quite naively in retrospect now why she hadn't told her story to a journalist, like to a TV person, it, like talk to a newspaper reporter or something, right? And I, I will never, ever forget the reaction that she had because it was. One of the most gut-wrenching things I've ever experienced in person, like in real time. This wonderful, smart, um, friendly, just lovely woman. Her smile vanished. Like the spark in her eyes went out and she physically contracted into herself. Everyone at the table noticed and shut up. Like the room temperature went down 5 or 10 degrees and she just quietly said, in answer to my question, she said, absolutely not. I have three kids. Are you fucking kidding me? When Heather was booked for her felony DUI, the police department published her intake photo and personal details on their Facebook page, which is public. As a modern equivalent to like being put in the stocks in the public square this treatment and breach of her civil rights was far far more punitive than any actual like criminal citation or restitution probation whatever could have been because in a town like Sioux City population 72,000 everybody knows everybody else And for your average, quietly desperate, cynical, and atomized Americans, the -the blood-in-the-water scent of, you know, um, a highly regarded citizen being brought low in any form always proves irresistible. People eat that shit up. It does not matter. And so Heather became a pariah. She said she was removed from the school board. She was removed from the PTA. She was passed up for a promotion at work. People threatened her and her family, her husband, her three children, with violence. They were physically assaulting her. Her kids were shunned, ostracized by their friends, you know, at a a critical part of a kid's life. I think they would have been like six or seven or eight when this happened. And if they weren't actively shunned by their friends or directly by their friends, then by their parents, their kid's parents kept them away. And after she said what she said, she just said like, God, she just bluntly said it ruined my life. And <laughs> I believe her. I believe her <laughs> as I've tried to relate this story in person to a few people over the last 10 days, um, as I keep coming back to it because I can't get away um, as much as this was sort of a confirmation and you know condemnation of my ridiculous power and privilege and the perspective that I default to as a wealthy white man, you know, mea culpa, in that regard, I have never, ever (laughs) been so mad in my fucking life as I was (sighs) that night. You know, Dave and I sit behind our computers and we can talk and understand fundamentally the, you know, the statistics and the metrics that describe the lived material reality of vulnerable populations in the United States. Just the constant simmering injustice of American society. But I don't think I've ever paid personal witness to such an abrupt and horrifying theft of a person's spark as I was on that night. It was like Her entire existence had been snuffed out like a candle. (laughs) In that moment, like, (laughs) and it was like a red haze moment, I would have gladly caught a bullet and met my end on this stupid fucking planet, like with my last breath trying to burn down that goddamn police department with every fucking pig inside. I was so angry. Needless to say, the night ended pretty shortly thereafter because what's the point? (laughs) Um, I stepped in it big and, um, yeah. And again, at least 20% of that rage was a shame that I am not often um, forced to feel the knowledge that I will probably never have to much less be able to suffer such a gross injustice and physical disruption of my well-being. And the corollary to this is that Heather herself is still alive. She's still walking and talking. She's still raising her kids to be brilliant and magical, just like she is, you know, somehow, in spite of and hopefully because of this scar that she'll carry forever and she wasn't scarred even by the systematic monstrosity of our fucking justice system but by its willing auxiliaries the complicit and venal people that her mistake or just her ignorance i guess that at one point she regarded as her friends and neighbors for daring to make what their high moral standards consider to be just an unforgivable mistake, and again, she's not even dead, like the Mike Browns, like the Kelly Thomases, you know, the Trayvons and Walter Scotts of the world. she's still around, she's getting better, and she's still fighting, which is a strength that I cannot even imagine finding in myself. So I relay this anecdote, um, A, because this is incredibly cathartic, um, and B, because I can't really do it justice. I would prefer to like, it's not my story to tell and it is hard to put into words. However, what I'd like to do is use it to set the stage for what is often an overlooked treatment of the fundamentally anti-democratic character of the caucus system itself. So, for now, given all the extreme news coverage, or lack thereof, the mainly Twitter blasting by surrogates, of the obvious ratfuckery that's being prosecuted by uh, the Iowa Democratic Party, not to mention Tom Perez and the DNC during the tabulation of the caucus votes, uh, again, because... It's baldly obvious that this, and worse, will continue to happen as they try to prevent Brother Bernard's inevitable ascendancy to the office of the president. Um, There's a lot of stuff to be said by that that's being said by much smarter people than me, and frankly, it's pretty straightforward. But what I want to talk about is caucusing, like the police, are going to post your vote on their Facebook page. So much of the um, the derision reserved for the caucus process is going around based on the ridiculous math involved with it, and the abstraction to delegates versus votes and viability thresholds, blah blah blah. The math is pretty simple if you're on the ground in your precinct, which is your only responsibility. Frankly, you don't have any um, further agency beyond casting your vote or hopefully, you know, kind of helping others manage it. In a single precinct, you count people, you allocate, allocate votes according to a very prescribed process, you do some proportional math. It <laughs> Frankly, it'd be a snap if our public school system didn't leave our entire goddamn society enumerate. <laughs> and if the Democratic Party wasn't a monstrous institution, you know, hell bent on preserving and growing its grip on the power it already has. Um, I had mentioned earlier that I was a precinct captain the campaign shifted i think like on saturday before the caucuses to a decision that if you couldn't find an iowa voter to serve as a um, precinct captain in a given precinct uh, we could have out-of-state volunteers do some training and be assigned as sort of like a an intermediary between a caucus participant and an observer so they passed this through the chain and everything was signed off on. So all of a sudden we could have you know volunteers serving in these positions that are typically reserved for voters. It was a last minute decision. We had to do a lot of scrambling at the last minute. I think we were training like 70 precinct captains <laughs> in the office <laughs> uh, two days before the actual event. I was one of them. Um, but it's important to have these people and I'll tell you why. So my precinct was Woodbury County. Precinct 42. Its seat is in Smithland, Iowa. S-M-I-T-H-L-A-N-D. This town has mm, probably about 215 people in it. The total voter catchment of the 36 square miles of uh, industrial grain and hog operations cannot exceed much more than twice that. I don't know, 400 people. So, When I showed up on the caucus evening, I had initially planned on stopping by the town bar, and we can talk about our very dear to our hearts town bar in another town in Iowa on another episode, to like, I don't know, grab a drink and maybe do some last minute recruiting, understanding that turnout for a town that size would be tiny, and each additional vote would be a huge advantage in the caucus process. What I hadn't counted on is that said tiny town is in fact too tiny To have a bar at all. At one point they did, but its owner apparently encountered some substance abuse problems, sold it to an absentee landlord who let its licenses lap and blah, blah, you know, the story from there. Story of America. Controlled decline and decay. So when I got there, I noticed that the sign was out already. It was like 5.15. um, Caucusing starts. Doors open at 6.30. Um, So I went inside, introduced myself to the precinct chair, lovely woman named Diane, Um, so we were holding it in a fire department's mess hall, basically. So like the one room attached to the one garage for the local fire department. Um, a couple other people showed up. I had some small talk with Connie, who was there as a Pete precinct captain. Good for them, I guess. And another woman named Marilyn who showed up early because she had nothing better to do. Please note that all three of these women were 60 plus years old, but they were also all registered voters in Woodbury County. Precinct 42, when I locked the doors at seven o'clock, when, you know, they're legally mandated to say, if you're not in line, you cannot vote. We can talk about that later. Um, when I legally closed the doors at 7 PM, our total attendance was nine people, nine. So 2% turnout, if that, I mean, probably probably turnout if you count registered Democrats. Anyway, um, this woman, Connie, the Pete precinct captain was for Pete. Nobody else was a husband and wife, Gene and his wife. I'm sorry. I can't remember the name brought Marilyn, the woman who had showed up because she had nothing better to do on board to total three votes for, and you're not going to believe it, Tom fucking Steyer, A 30-ish year old couple um, were holding down the Warren votes in the corner and my corner round table was held by me, again, legally distinct, not voting, merely facilitating, and a woman and her granddaughter. So my Bernie sisters showed up to represent that evening. At this point, the training that the campaign had given us far exceeded Diane's awareness of what the new policies and procedures were because they change everything every four years. And who even remembers shit from four years ago? Um, Frankly, with a single delegate, each precinct has assigned a number of delegates based on total population representation. That doesn't change. Um, So it was only a single delegate to the County Convention because of tiny old Smithland, you know, there's just not enough people Um, with one delegate per priest in a precinct. All the like, viability threshold junk goes out the window and it just becomes a majority vote. So um, if there are four candidates with supporters, the person with the least supporters is eliminated after the first vote. That person, for example, in our in our case it was Pete, um, then has to elect to join the group for another candidate. It's pretty straightforward. You do that until after several rounds of voting, one candidate has a majority vote. The basic, fundamental, and Quite disturbing problem with the process is that all of these votes are public. Everyone sees who you voted for. And then everybody is not only able to, but encouraged to argue with you, support you, or denounce your preference in between these rounds of voting. And so in this tiny room, you could see immediately the families aligning with one another, like giving funny looks at their neighbors, alliances kind of forming and dissolving briefly like by glares and frankly most importantly diane the chair ended up voting with the young couple because surprise she was the woman's mother so after three rounds of votes the great people of woodbury county precinct 42 ended up with a majority 5-4 in favor of elizabeth warren i mean at that point there were no hard feelings except for maybe on the part of the uh original Liz Warren couple who loudly claimed that they couldn't really <laughs> trust any of their later round vote hangers on to faithfully elect Warren at the next step of the process at the county convention. <laughs> and to be fair as well, they were completely right. The Bernard Sibs said that if they received the delegation, they would have cast Woodbury 42's one delegate vote for our man Bernie. So what I'm getting at is this is sort of like An extreme microcosm of what hundreds of thousands of people live through on caucus night. Beyond the ridiculous scheduling, a specific time on a specific evening, middle of the week, that you have to show up at a specific, often remote, and forbidding polling place with some inscrutable delegate math that everybody hypes up and panics about. Frankly, beyond that, the Iowa caucuses are a system of social control. So, I mean, I guess, imagine, I doubt many of you actually have to imagine that you work like a typical American job. You're behind a retail desk or, you know, a food service employee. You're a short order cook or like a truck driver or a teacher. Now, put yourself in that caucus room with your manager or your superintendent or your director or whatever title your boss takes on, who I will almost guarantee you, is voting for someone else in that first alignment. How does that feel when your boss looks across a high school gymnasium or a Knights of Columbus hall, I'm not joking, or like a fire department and sees you in Bernie's corner? Now, imagine you work for a health insurance company. Imagine you work for a bank. So the first state to vote for nominees to the highest office in the land, the first momentum of any real push for a winning presidential campaign, uses a system with no private balloting. A secret ballot is like the UN gold standard for fair elections. It's regarded as a fundamental right for citizens of a true democracy, which, I mean, frankly, after the events of this week, is clearly not a particularly apt descriptor for the United States, if it ever was. Um, Further, it sort of deploys this system into place in a relatively insular, like, Protestant, tradition-heavy, highly white, and rural state. A place where familial connections and neighborly relationships are vital to your social life and your function as a living, breathing, adult human, like the passive aggressive nature of the Midwest. I mean, you, you hear these stereotypes from the music man of like Iowa Stubborn or Minnesota Nice, you know, or these things that come through. Frankly, that only aggravates it because it just leads to this simmering distrust and atomization of communities. It is the opposite of freedom. It is the direct opposite of freedom. You have no rights under a system like that that can so Easily and without consequence, punish you for your choices in something so benign as a party primary. A party primary, it barely even matters. It's horrific. It should be abolished. And hopefully, after this fucking debacle, it will be. I hope we never see an Iowa caucus again. It was embarrassing, start to finish. The campaign knew it would run into problems because of course it would. And it was so, so funny to watch them build shadow, like in in the UK, like they call it, like the shadow government. You have the equivalent of the actual installed government on the opposition party side. Bernie's campaign built out a shadow government to record, collate, and communicate the results of the caucuses completely independently of the DNC and the people who actually ran it. We had an app and everything, and it probably worked fucking better than Pacronym's bullshit um, that fell apart on the night of the caucus. It is really not that hard. And guess what? Because it's really not that hard, Bernie's campaign just went and fucking did it. We did it. So not only did we win, we had gobs of receipts. We had the transparency, which is the only advantage of the caucus process, is that everything being public Gives you the opportunity to refute the inevitable corruption of the process. So this whole story, again, is only very distantly <laughs> related to the West Wing. This was somewhat cathartic. I hope that you by by listening to this, like you get an idea for where my head's at and the 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 Process that I've been going through over the last few days. I really appreciate you listening. I will say that, to draw a very distant parallel, um, the West Wing inhabits its own little sphere of social control, which we've complained and brought up many times in the course of recording our show. When a cultural institution, I guess in in Iowa's case, like your your Protestant work ethic and your religiously derived value system. When a cultural institution so thoroughly saturates the order as the West Wing has with political operatives, power brokers, um, you know, elected officials, at least on the Democratic Party side, you know, Republicans or whatever, um, the West Wing becomes an expression of an identification of, of orthodoxy. There's a very narrow frame of acceptable discourse. And stepping outside those bounds, even for an idea as air quotes radical, as universal public health care, free public education. That step is met with what goes beyond disbelief to just incomprehension. And in addition to that, the concept of incremental change has been enshrined as the only possibility in in the brains of these people, which is counterfactual to, I don't know, the entirety of American history. Whatever the government wants to do, it has always inevitably done, with no need for increments. And by this, you know, by the virtue of this sort of staid inculcation of these values, these entrenched institutions will lumber onward, carried by their own inertia that's frankly entirely illusory outside of the willingness, complacency, and ignorance of those who perpetuate it. The planet is quite literally on fire and our time is short We have this tiny, ample, but rapidly narrowing window to squeak through if we want to survive, much less mitigate the impending global climate catastrophe. Um, Bernard's election is the first step. It is the foot in the door of giving enough people, just enough people, the mental and physical bandwidth to take a step back, think about their lives and their position in society, and to hopefully, on reflection, just come on board. Because the only way we're going to do it is if everybody works together. I doubt many of you listening to this are not already committed to the movement, but if you are not, if I know you, and you know me, and you're not on board, please, now is the time. The time is now. We we are almost out of time. So, Dave and I uh, will be back next week with a real episode during which I'll probably share a few more of my more funny experiences um, in Iowa. But thank you for listening. I appreciate it as always. And we'll catch you next time.